The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Roadmap to Success with Immunotherapy's Dynamic Evolution in Metastatic, Locally Advanced, and Early-Stage Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Multidisciplinary Best Practices for Exemplary Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash NCG860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning and welcome. Really appreciate everyone's attendance this morning. We have an intimate group here and some folks online. Really good to see everybody as we start this multidisciplinary meeting. Today, I'm really honored to be joined by uh, some great faculty, and we'll have the opportunity to talk about some of the data that emerged in immunotherapy over the last few years, and to really engage on how to use these data in our practice. So our, our talk today overall, a roadmap to success with immunotherapy's dynamic evolution in metastatic, locally advanced, and early stage non-small cell lung cancer, multidisciplinary best practices for exemplary care. My name is Matt Gubins. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at UCSF. I'm joined by Dr. Donington, who's the chief of thoracic surgery at the University of Chicago, and Dr. Shum from the NYU Cancer Center. So our goals for today, the learning objectives, first of all, to enhance your understanding of the latest evidence supporting the use of immunotherapies in metastatic stage four, stage three unresectable, and stage one through three resectable non-small cell lung cancer to augment your skills in identifying candidates for immunotherapies and integrating immunotherapies into individualized treatment plans for patients with non-small cell lung cancer throughout the disease continuum, and then to improve best practices for multidisciplinary collaboration and patient-centered care to make the most of immunotherapy advances and improve outcomes for our patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So, we're going to take a few minutes at the beginning to look in the metastatic setting. Now, the, the, the vast amount of data uh, that my colleagues will be covering are in the unresectable stage three and the resectable setting. So much exciting data emerging in the last couple of years. But we're going to take a few minutes to talk about the metastatic setting where there still are so many options to grapple with. Um, I'm not going to delve into the data, but show this really interesting slide. You know, it's now almost 10 years since the first approval for a PD-1 inhibitor in second-line metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. That was an exciting, uh, you know, kind of advance. But of course, then the race began to try to move this to the front line for better outcomes. And then, of course, later to, to stage three and stage one and two. But this gives a nice timeline of the range of approvals by the FDA for various immunotherapy approaches and immunotherapy combinations with chemo and with anti-angiogenics. Uh, you, hear 26, you see 2016, the Keynote 24 landmark trial, we got the access to pembrolizumab for high pdl one expressors. And then um, a more controversial data set to, to uh, allow pembro for uh, 1% or higher. And then on to Atezo and Simiplumab, other PD-1 and PDL one single agents, and then Nivolumab and Ipilimumab as a double immunotherapy, but without chemo approach. And then, of course, a, a suite of studies that have really changed practice for patients across the PDL one continuum, uh, the Keno 189 and 407 trials, where we had Pembro with either Pemetrexid or Nabpaclitaxel with carboplatin. Then the Empower set of trials where bevacizumab was added for adenocarcinoma and uh, also chemo with uh, atezolizumab and nabpaclitaxel uh, uh, in Empower 130. Uh, Simiplumab also in that same vein, chemo plus a PDL1 inhibitor. 
And then importantly, this, these questions have come up if we, if PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibition is useful clinically, it is the addition of CTLA-4 inhibition either alone, double agent, Nevo-IPI on Checkmate 227, um, or with chemo, either two cycles in Checkmate 9LA, or with four cycles on Poseidon. So many options, all of these clearly beating standard of care chemotherapy, but none of them tested head to head. And we're not gonna have those data. And so it, it comes to us as a feast of options, but the question is when the rubber meets the road and we have the patient in front of us in clinic, how do we adjudicate? How do we choose one of these many options to optimize our patient's experience and outcomes? And that's what we'll kind of get into in some of our data um, discussion here today. So the first case I'll present, this is a 72-year-old man who quit smoking 35 years ago. He was actually found on a coronary calcium scan, so a cardiology evaluation, not a cancer evaluation or screening, to have a 3.4-centimeter right middle lobe uh, lung mass. PET-CT confirmed hypermetabolism in that mass, but also showed meta, uh, hypermetabolic right hyalur and subcarinal lymphadenopathy. And then unfortunately, also multifocal bone metastases at L1, the 12th rib, and the left scapula. MRI of the brain was negative for metastatic disease. Uh, the patient, relatively healthy, had kind of some 72-year-old comorbidities, hypertension, gout, dyslipidemia, but had excellent performance status. Again, this was a cardiology workup, but no, no cancer-referred symptoms until you elicited, oh, maybe some mild left upper back pain that he had chalked up to other causes. So he had an EBUS. This showed metastatic, poorly differentiated carcinoma with both glandular and squamous features. So had some patchy positive TTF1, but was actually negative for napsin A and P40. So it sounds like this pathologist didn't put their nickel down in terms of adeno or squamous, kind of a mixed, poorly differentiated uh, carcinoma that we see from time to time. This was KRAS G13D, and the PDL1 TPS was high at 100%. So Good performance status, uh, stage 4B disease, high PDL1, KRAS G13D. So maybe I'd like to kind of reach out to my colleague here, Dr. Shum, uh, out in New York, where it's an hour beyond where we are. I apologize. Uh, these folks are going to be more on top of it this morning. I'm still at uh, 4.45. Um, but in, in, your, in your tumor board or in your practice, you have this good performance status patient, clearly multifocal disease. High PDL1. How do you think this through? How do you discuss this with your patient? Yeah, so definitely from the slide that you showed showing the timeline of how many options we have, you know, I mean, that's an amazing thing that we have to have all those options. Um, for this case, um, you know, certainly we, we usually do start out with the PDL1. So here it was 100%. So that drives, you know, one of the bigger parts about figuring out about chemotherapy and immunotherapy combinations. Um, and then also, of course, looking at the molecular profiling. So the KRS. G13D that was seen, and then of course how the patient is doing, and um, whether you know perhaps chemotherapy might be needed for maybe a more rapid response. Um, so you know in this case, I, I probably would go for the monotherapy option, um, just given that it seemed his only symptoms seemed to be some mild back pain, um, no mention of any respiratory issues. So for that reason, I, I would probably choose one of the monotherapy options. Yeah. No, that, that'd be generally our practice as well. It's an important discussion to have, but I think hammering in on the extent of PDL1 expression, hammering in on the lack of, of much symptomatology, where, you know, as, as you alluded to, we have a higher response rate when you combine chemo with ICI, um, but you also have more toxicity. So is there an opportunity to get away with single agent, have a durable response and save chemo in the back pocket? I'm curious, does, you know, we talk about the, the, the approvals for 50% or higher, 
Do you, in your mind, or as you talk to patients, do you differentiate between that 51% and the 100%? This one was deliberately very high at PDL1 100%, but does that gradient make a difference to you? Do you think there's something there? It's a good question. Um, mostly, I, I loop them all together in the 50 to 100%. Um, we do watch them very closely, of course. So in my practice, we usually, um, after about six weeks of treatment, we will get a new scan just to make sure we're heading in the right direction and you know have a low threshold to either add chemotherapy at that point if you know we're not seeing as great a response or if symptomatically the patient is is not doing as well. Um, but you know, usually we use that 50% cutoff and then go from there. Yeah, totally reasonable. And and I, I like that point. We do the same thing. I know when you look at the guidelines, often they say, get your first restaging scan after two to three cycles. We tend to get them after two. I want a quick response. We don't have much pseudo progression in lung cancer. I've, I maybe can count on one hand the number of patients where I've had convincing pseudo progression. That's a patient doing really well. If they're having progression at two cycles, that, that regimen ain't working is kind of my, my take on it. I, I talk about that later on, not every two cycles, but that's useful. And I, I do think there's a little bit of a gradient effect. It, it weighs into many, many uh, multifactorial things to discuss, but there is some evidence that the higher the PDL1, the more robust that single agent response is. So I think about it in context, but even a pure 50% without much comorbidities, without much symptomatology, I'm happy to try the single agent, hoping for that durable response with, with less toxicity. So I think really, really interesting discussion for these high PDL1 patients. Um, I noticed at least some people in the audience on uh, here online were a little tempted by that KRAS mutation. So much excitement in the KRAS space, right? This undruggable mutation now is druggable. I'll make a couple points. One is that it's really, uh, for now, only treatable in the second line um, with approved agents. And secondly, this was not one of the mutations that has a, a treatment at this time. We're working on other KRAS mutations, but right now the only indicated uh, drug is the drugs are for G12C KRAS mutations. So just, that was a little bit of a distractor, but hopefully there'll be options for that set of patients soon as well. All right. So the second case, a little different. This is a 77-year-old woman who presented with progressive dyspnea on exertion and hoarseness. She had 10-pound weight loss, cough, left neck discomfort. She, because of the hoarseness, her actual first contact with the medical system was ENT, who found a paralyzed left vocal cord, presumably from a mediastinal lymphadenopathy, as was found on the subsequent CT, bilateral pulmonary nodules, mediastinal lymphadenopathy. EBIS was done. This was positive for adenocarcinoma that was TTF1 positive. PDL1 was TPS 10%. Um, she had a 10-pack smoking history, quit 25 years ago. And on mutation testing, she had the KRAS G12C, for which we do have drugs. Also, interestingly, a co-mutation of P53 and TMB, tumor mutational burden, was noted to be high. Unfortunately, before she was ready to start therapy, she was admitted for rapidly worsening shortness of breath. And as we see sometimes, uh, she was found to have a large pericardial effusion. She was, she was in tamponade. And this required an emergent pericardiocentesis and pericardial window placement that did improve her symptoms, and she was able to be discharged. Again, I'll, I'll defer, I'll, I'll ask my, my colleague in medical oncology, Dr. Shum, what's your approach? Again, kind of a middling 10% PDL1, more symptomatic. How do you think about the options you have available for her? Yeah, so th this, you know, the less than 50% group is definitely um, so many more options here to, to consider. So with this situation, um, again, we're having this pericardial effusion that, you know, needed an emergent procedure, you know, definitely the time is of the essence here. So that definitely would say to me, you know, needs chemotherapy. And then the question about the immunotherapy. So 
Um, I, I think it's very reasonable to add just mono uh, um, uh, immunotherapy, so with um, pembrolizumab, for example. But as you can see, there are many options here for um, PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibition, which also might be an, um, a good option for the patient as well. Um, you know, th there's so many different regimens in terms of how many cycles of chemotherapy you give with it. And so I think um, taking into account the performance status of the patient, you know, other comorbidities or, or other factors that you would take into account here. Uh, so there's definitely no right answer here. Um, I would say usually, you know, I would go with uh, carboplatin, um, pemetrexid, and probably pembrolizumab, but, you know, definitely tempting with a lot of the other um, options here with, you know, the dual checkpoint um, blockade as well. When do you, just to, I get it, because I think we all have that same kind of struggle in our minds. How do we choose from among these regimens that haven't been tested head to head? Do you talk to your patients about the availability of the Poseidon trial, the Checkmate 9LA trial, where we do have the, the PD-1 CTLA-4 trial? I know for a while there was enough advertising where patients would come asking about some of those approaches. And I had to have some kind of script or discussion to have with them. When do you say, you know what, I kind of would like to do the dual ICI? And I struggle with this too. I, there's not a right or wrong answer. But how do you talk about it? When do you invoke those those yeah. dual ICIs? Uh, to be honest, with the carboplatin shortage that you know, affected a lot of the nation, actually, um, you know, we started to think more about this dual checkpoint blockade, you know, when uh, chemotherapy was becoming a little bit more difficult to obtain. Um, but so because of that, it, you know, sort of gave us more experience with using those uh, dual checkpoint uh, blockade. Uh, there's definitely a lot of data that's going on about looking at the molecular profiling about certain subsets of patients who might benefit more from dual blockade, you know, the STK11, KEEP1 uh, patients. Um, so those are things that we take into account. Um, here in this case, you know, it was mentioned about TNB high, which you know, a lot of controversy about that being a, a biomarker. But, you know, I can see how that could be somewhat tempting to think about using a dual blockade because of that. Um, but it is about patients, about you know, chemotherapy, the toxicities of that, the toxicities of immunotherapy. There are some patients who are adamant about not wanting chemotherapy. And so then we, you know, I might want them to be on a dual blockade, uh, dual immunotherapy blockade in those situations. Really well put. And hey, I come from California. We have a lot of patients who have a lot of dubiousness about medical care in general, have a lot of dubiousness about chemotherapy, and, and yet they'll embrace immunotherapy with, with open arms. And I think some of my conversations in my area have been to say, is there anything I can do to avoid chemo? And we have these options. And again, their performance against chemo is pretty similar to either ICI with chemo or double ICI with chemo. So it's, it's on the table. And I, I agree, I got a lot more experience during the carboplatin shortage. These trials came out a little later. So I think sometimes there's a little, there's a tendency to stick with what you've been using that's already in your Epic build, which is our electrical medical, electronic medical record system. Um, but I think with more facility and more hopefully information over time, we'll be able to suss out patients and the biomarkers to select these. But it's really hard right now in the absence of data head to head or specific biomarkers to know which to use. So they're all on the table. They're all appropriate. We have a lot more work to do to figure out which one would be optimal for our patients. So we have a couple more minutes, and, and I, I, I want to you know, acknowledge that this meeting in New Orleans is a multidisciplinary meeting, and we have the expertise of Dr. Donington. Something that I think is coming up you know, time to time in our tumor boards is the question of someone who has a contemporaneous single oligometastatic presentation. Um, we had one of these in tumor board a couple weeks ago, a patient we were setting up for a resection of what looked like an early stage tumor, but on appropriate MRI, you know, staging, we did find a single brain metastasis. So I kind of want to bring Dr. Donington into the discussion because these are the ones we do bring back to tumor board. 
when you see these oligometastatic presentations, especially single brain, single adrenal, are you enthusiastic about surgery? Are you hesitant? What are some of the things that go through your mind as the patient's potential surgeon about cases like this? So in a patient who's otherwise healthy, we remain very enthusiastic about surgery. So, you know, this was old time stuff that we did, you know, and felt like we were doing it off the record in the olden days. But now since we've seen the Gomez trial and that concept that oligometastatic disease is something separate, we would go right ahead and, you know, treat them with an induction immunotherapy or whatever my oncologist wants. And then as long as they have not progressed, we would... Now it's not called surgery, it's called local consolidative therapy. <laughs> uh, but for a single med, especially without nodal disease, surgery is usually our local consolidative therapy. And this, this meeting is going to be so great about this because folks like Dr. Paul, like Dr. Palma, Dr. Gomez, of course, what is oligometastatic disease? Two brain meds, <laughs> an adrenal, two bone lesions? Do, do these, I mean, obviously every case is different, but if I say bone, do you start to step away a little less bit? Less enthusiastic, <laughs> but I, there's uh, not enough science here to really direct us. I do think it has a lot to do with overall tumor volume, maybe, and the patient here. The physiology of the patient really comes into play. And one thing I heard clearly from your first response is, this isn't a patient you're taking straight to surgery anyway. You're doing some induction. This is a proof that you actually have control of the disease before you take them to the OR, right? You want to prove you've controlled the disease and that this is a good biology. That oligometastatic is that first hint that maybe this is a good biology tumor that's just been here for a super long time. But we, you know, right. And we all have these tumors, right? And we have these patients with tremendous durable responses. So right. I like to hear that kind of lo- greater move toward local consolidative therapy with knives or with rays, um, really a great opportunity. Um, I guess another question in the metastatic setting is, you know, we brought up TP53 in that last case. Dr. Shum, are there other kind of other mutations that kind of pique your interest um, not not the not the actionable mutations like EGFR and ALK, but you mentioned STK11. You, you know, we talked about TP53. Do any of those weigh into your decision making in terms of um, how you choose a regimen first line? Yeah, so definitely, as you were talking, everyone was talking about you know, like the, the biology of what we're dealing with. So you know, unfortunately, because many of those are not um, druggable directly, you know, it does kind of give you a sense of you know, are these is it, they have some prognosis factors. So you know, what, you know, how is this going to end up being down the road? So you know, we're seeing a lot of data about the STK11, keep one, you know, being, um, you know, maybe not as good of a tumor, but, you know, we need to do something a little bit more for them. Um, yeah, so th- those are definitely things that we, we take into account. TP53, you know, been around, of course, for a very long time. But, you know, when we see those, you know, being present, you know, you definitely you know, take another look at it and just want to be even more cautious about what you decide to do. Yeah, it's these early hints at biology. Staging isn't everything. Staging is has a liability. We don't take into consideration the genomic milieu in which these tumors arise. I'm much more worried about a patient with TP53, SDK11, KEEP1, all at presentation versus that patient with a very bland genomic report. And I think, yeah, that's we, we alluded to that clinically with Dr. Donington and genomically with Dr. Shum. So really important points as we think about treatment options. And I think at least even if we don't have kind of clearly different treatments, we may, might favor more aggressive therapies when we see some of those genetic uh, complexities. So I think a good discussion. I didn't present any new data, and yet there's still this kind of a lot of crosstalk at Tumor Board, at our medical oncology meetings about how to choose the right regimen from a whole bevy of options. And again, this is just yet another schematic of how to think about this. 
all those options are approved for all levels of PDL1. There's a little bit of, of separating out when you have um, PDL1 less than 1%, where the single agent's not available, and Neva, Olibab, and Ipilumumab are technically not available, though are on NCCN for reasons we didn't get into today, but kind of some compelling data there. But really has to do with all these things we've talked about. In the absence of head-to-head -head data, what's the disease burden? What's the symptom severity? What's the performance status? We didn't touch on autoimmunity. We do have patients in our clinic you know, who have rheumatoid arthritis walking in the door, who have ulcerative colitis. These are patients where we may not be as enthusiastic about immunotherapy agents. But even then, there's a lot of gray area on the gradient to talk about, well, if this is life-preserving, maybe we try to mitigate autoimmune conditions exacerbating. So really a huge uh, effort multidisciplinary-wise with a different set of disciplines like rheumatology, gastroenterology, and the like. We all have people to help us manage some of these symptoms, either in people who have the pre-existing comorbidities or who develop them. And then, of course, patient goals and preferences. We really want to sit down and meet the patient where they're at, talk about the you know, kind of competing risks and benefits of these strategies. And that's why I think for now, AI is not replacing us in clinic. There's just too much to talk about. So with that, kind of a nice conversation about metastatic disease. I see some great questions on the board. We're going to come to all those at the end. Keep those coming as we get through the different modules here. And with that, I'm going to welcome to the podium Dr. Shum, again, our medical oncologist from NYU, to talk about the situation in stage three. Unresectable. Great. Thank you so much. So yes, we're shifting gears a little bit here. Uh, okay. All right. So stage three, non-small cell lung cancer, as you can see, a very heterogeneous group. And so um, it, it's right on that borderline of, you know, should we be considering surgery? Should we be considering um, systemic therapy? And then, of course, uh, concurrent chemo RRT, which we're going to get into much more. But the slide is really just, you know, pointing out that um, you could just see the purple at the top, you know, the stage 3A, 3B, 3C, it, it just spans um, all the different sizes of the tumor, the nodal staging. Um, so this is what makes stage 3 so di somewhat difficult in terms, and not straightforward, in terms of deciding, you know, how are we going to approach the patient in front of us. And so here, here the major questions about how we, we usually approach stage 3 here. So definitely a multidisciplinary um, discussion, you know, should be had. Um, between medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and their surgeons um, to really put our heads together and figure out, you know, what would be the best outcome for the patient depending on our treatment plan. Taking into account patient factors, so certainly the performance status, are they having a lot of weight loss, um, their comorbidities, so things like autoimmunity are definitely things that we want to take into consideration. Pulmonary function, so again, definitely if we're considering things like surgery and radiation, this is going to be very important um, because those things can be directly impacted by that. Uh, cardiac function, again, whether you know surgery might be an option for them. What does the patient want? Um, and of course, other social and financial factors. Um, you know, radiation is a great modality, but you know it can be very inconvenient for patients to come back and forth. You know, depending on where they live in relation to their care center. And so, these are things that we do have to take into account when considering concurrent chemo RT, for example. And then, of course, looking into the tumor itself. And so, um, as the prior slide was pointing out, you know, stage. Three, we, the differences between A, B, and C um, are, are very different. And also, of course, about the lymph nodes. Um, you know, we, we always hone in about N2 disease. So, you know, big differences between single station N2 disease versus multi-station N2 disease. And this is where we really rely a lot on our surgeons to really help us, you know, to help us determine, is this a resectable patient? Um, 
you know, that's definitely, in, at least in my practice, something that's very key is just having the surgeon at least be the initial um, person to take a look and see, you know, where should we be looking at for this? Um, then, of course, we also look to our radiation oncologist. Can radiation be delivered at the dose that is needed? And again, taking into account location, um, the size of the tumor, uh, the, the patient's pulmonary function, you know, all these things need to be taken into account. And then, you know, particularly for the medical oncologist, the PDL1 and those genetic alterations are also things that we take into account as well. So for the NCCN guidelines, um, for stage three, unresectable, um, also including stage two, unresectable here for uh, good performance status, um, the recommendation is for definitive concurrent chemo radiation followed by consolidation immunotherapy uh, with Durvalumab, which is given either every two weeks or every four weeks, um, given for up to one year. So this is what the NCCN guidelines say for unresectable disease. And so, of course, this recommendation comes from the Pacific study, which I think we're all very familiar with now. It was a very practice changing for the stage three space. Um, this was the phase three randomized, double-blind, um, large study um, for patients with unresectable stage three disease, um, non-small cell lung cancer. And again, uh, they could not have had any progression after receiving at least two cycles of definitive platinum-based concurrent chemotherapy um, and radiation. Um, they had to, of course, have a, a relatively good performance status. Um, and of note, it didn't matter what their pdl one status was um, to be enrolled into the study. And so they were randomized um, two to one to either receive the Durelmab um, given every two weeks in this study um, versus placebo. And so uh, the key endpoints here were um, progression v survival and overall survival. Um, and we're going to be talking next about um, some updated data from there. Um, so here, um, you know, again, the study um, presented, you know, quite a while ago. And so now we even have updated five-year overall survival data here, which, again, was very reassuring to see that we were seeing the same um, benefits that we were seeing when the trial was first presented. Um, so here you can see that overall survival uh, at five years was uh, 47.5 months uh, for the Devalimab arm uh, versus placebo with the 29.1 months uh, with a hazard ratio of, of 0.72 um, and progression-free survival um, still about almost three times as long um, intervalimab arm uh, versus placebo. Um, so again, this is why this is, you know, considered our standard of care for patients with stage three unresectable um, non-small cell lung cancer. And here you can see the subgroup analysis, which is something that's been looked at very carefully um, after the study was first presented. Um, you can see overall, and I apologize, the slide is quite small, but you can see the overall, most of the subgroups, you know, of course, were benefiting from this one year um, of Duralumab um, after concurrent chemo RT. Um, and when we look at um, you know, specific things that people were very interested in was one about their mutational status. So EGFR and ALK um, uh, status, um, the, the patients were allowed onto the study, um, even if they were EGFR or ALK positive. Not that many patients, but um, here, you know, it's interesting to see um, here you, there's been uh, many questions, especially with new approvals um, in the adjuvant space for EGFR about whether um, patients with these markers should receive a, a consolidation immunotherapy. Um, there have been many um, studies that have come out since uh, looking at this, and, you know, we could talk about it a little bit later as well, but, you know, whether, you know, we should be giving consolidation immunotherapy to these patients or not. 
Then, of course, looking at PDL1 expression level. So here, the cutoffs here were uh, 25%, um, either greater or, or less than. And so, you know, we were seeing here that perhaps patients who had no PDL1 expression may not be benefiting as much from the consolidation immunotherapy. Um, but again, these are all subgroup analyses. Um, and so, I think it is something, a, a conversation that takes place in the clinic as well. Um, I guess I'll just take a moment here to, you know, talk to Dr. Gubins about, you know, what he does about an EGFR patient, for example, um, you know, who has an unresectable stage three disease uh, with an EGFR mutation. Do you give them consolidation duralumab after uh, concurrent chemo-RT? I have to admit my thinking has evolved over the time since Pacific came out. You initially had that tiny little dot on the forest plot, you know, reflecting the small number of patients. But I also acknowledge we're in a curative situation. We don't get many chances to cure folks. And so kind of with that really scant data and saying, hey, well, you know, that maybe the data is in favor, but it's not clearly against. And I do want to go for a cure. I used to offer it. I have a conversation. I'd show them this sometimes, my very sophisticated EGFR patients. But as we've kind of, as data have emerged, first of all, that, you know, the failure rate is not insignificant. And as we've learned more about the safety profile of giving um, immunotherapy in the setting of a TKI is much more uh, a significant, has a much more significant risk of pneumonitis, especially, and not just low grade, but grade three, four, even five has been seen. Even though they're not given together, duralumab hangs out in the body for a long time. Half-life is very long. And so there's just that risk that the patient doesn't respond. And then you have to go on osimertinib and you maybe aren't able to, or you subject the patient to risk. So I, our practice has really started to lean against it. Stanford had a nice little set of patients where they showed that patients did not have great outcomes in this setting. So that's our practice. I don't know about you at NYU. Yep, it'd be the same. Um, we definitely take pause for an EGFR mutated patient. Um, of course, there are going to be studies that are coming out that's actually looking to answer this question about giving um, an EGFR TKI after the concurrent chemo RT. So we definitely look forward to that information. Um, I think for the most part of my practice, I don't use um, consolidation duralumab in the EGFR patients, um, but again, awaiting you know data to you know fully support that. How far past EGFR ALK do you have that caution? Uh, Those are the two that were probably most <laughs> had the least confidence in immunotherapy. And what what if you get to the RETS and the METS? Yes, I mean much more rare to find, um, but I, I probably might take I would probably take pause with them as well. But um, you know, it's always on a case by case basis as well. <laughs> All right. Uh, so at um, ESMO, um, just last month um, was presented the Pacific 6 trial, which is a phase two open label trial. Um, this was also, again, for stage three unresectable patients. Um, and so one of the key things that we see in real world is that many patients can't receive concurrent chemo RT for various factors, you know, whether it's their age, their performance status, um, the volume of disease. Um, and other challenges, you know, that we we're talking about, like getting to the radiation center, for example. Um, and so because of that, uh, many patients actually get sequential um, chemotherapy and radiation. So getting the chemotherapy first, followed by their radiation. So you can see here that about 14% of patients receive the sequential um, regimen um, in the real world. So Pacific 6 was actually looking at, um, you know, these patients specifically, that if they are receiving this sequentially, and then they got re received consolidation development of how would they do. And so in this uh, study, um, they broke it down by their ECOG status or their performance status. The majority of patients still were about performance um, status of zero to one, a couple of them with a performance status of two, um, but it, they were receiving the development monthly um, in, in both arms of the study. 
Interestingly, their primary endpoints different from our, our usual endpoints here, but they were looking specifically at the incidence of grade three or four possibly related adverse events within six months of starting Dravimab. Um, and then the secondary endpoints were ones we're more familiar with, um, PFS, overall response rate and duration response and overall survival. Um, so this, again, is a phase two study. And so we're looking forward to the confirmatory phase three data um, from Pacific 5 that's um, looking at um, patients who are either receiving um, concurrent chemo RT or sequential uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And so from the Pacific 6 um, data that, again, was presented last month, um, they saw that only about 4.3% uh, of patients um, had any grade three or four possibly related adverse events without, within six months. Um, and about 6% had uh, grade three and four um, possibly related adverse events overall throughout the study. Um, there was some encouraging efficacy data that was seen um, in patients who were receiving the consolidation um, in a frailer population than that was, than that was um, enrolled in Pacific. So again, you know, supporting you know, what we're seeing in the real world here um, in, in terms of this type of regimen and um, how to um, sequence uh, the regimens that they receive here. So here's a very long list um, um, looking at the various trials that are ongoing in this space for stage three for unresectable locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Um, just pointing out um, um, more Pacific trials, again, looking at uh, Duvalumab with uh, radiation, um, as well as we were talking about the LORA trial a little bit about looking at um, EGFR patients to receive osimertinib after concurrent chemo RT. Um, and then again, many different um, combinations of immunotherapy after um, concurrent chemo RT as well that's ongoing, and also novel immunotherapy agents um, such as oleclebab, monolizumab, uh, terigolumab, which is the anti-tigit antibody. Um, so again, um, more to come for sure um, in this space. So let's uh, look at a case here now. So we have a 67-year-old female um, healthy, and she's found to have a left upper lobe adenocarcinoma. Um, on a, she actually had a lung cancer screening um, scan, and this showed a 4.3 centimeter left apical and a 6.1 centimeter left hilar mass uh, with the AP window adenopathy. Uh, she undergoes a PET scan, which shows a relatively high SUV in the lung masses at 17, and then um, in, the left, in the lymph node it was 13. Uh, she undergoes a CT-guided biopsy, and the FNA shows a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. Um, by EBUS, um, by interventional pulmon uh, pulmonology, um, she's found to have um, uh, non-small cell lung cancer in lymph node 4L um, that was favoring adenocarcinoma, and then her lymph nodes 4R and 7 are negative. On her biomarker testing, her PDL1 is less than 1%. She is found to have a KRAS G12C and ATM mutation. Uh, TMB was stable um, at 9.5, um, and her clinical stage ends up being a T4N2M0. And here is just a look at her imaging there. You can see the left apical mass and then that large left hilar mass that's seen. And you know, these are, again, important in terms of um, surgery and radiation oncology and, and determining you know, which of our regimens we might consider here. All right, so um, to our panelists here, um, what would you do in this case? Dr. Donington? So this is kind of, it's not a super common scenario, but this is the patient who has a 3B who I actually think is probably resectable. 
um, the bulk of her disease is actually in the lung and not in the mediastinum or hilum. Um, and I really think that's what drives receptability in stage three is the bulk of the nodal disease. And her nodal disease looks kind of small on what we see there. I mean, it's definitely there. Um, so if she was healthy, as it said, I think I would be evaluating her for a resection. <laughs> and, um, of course, you know, speaking with the medical oncologist, you know, would this be someone that you would want neoadjuvant therapy before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, any, I mean, any stage three patient, I think, has to have an induction therapy. Um, and, again, I think, yeah, there's, that's no longer a conversation, I think, <laughs> at most of our medical centers, hopefully. <laughs> Even if it is a single station uh, PA window, it shouldn't be a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a radiation oncologist here, but uh, Dr. Gubins, maybe I'll have you step into that role a little bit um, for the, the converse about, you know, uh, um, uh, giving the concurrent chemo RT in, the, in this case. I didn't do well enough in physics to go into radon, but I, I think it's it's a, a radiatable field, so it's definitely amenable. But I, I really appreciate that discussion because I think the single station confines that that feels like a case where we think about it. And actually, to give a plug, I think Dr. Nunton is going to give a talk later today or tomorrow about patients who get neoadjuvant who can't go to surgery. There's still options, and they do they can do well. So it could even be definitive chemo radiation later if we try for induction and it just doesn't work out. But I, I, I that's the whole point of multidisciplinary discussion. I think one other kind of interesting subtle point from medical oncology point of view is if they do go to definitive chemo radiation, whether the PDL1 0% weighs into your decision making for the Dervalumab. In the EMA or the Europe European setting, you wouldn't be offered, you'd be able to offer it. Here the FDA has approved it. How do you approach that? Yeah, um, I think just for, you know, somewhat lack of other options, you know, I, I do offer the immunotherapy even for patients with low PDL1. Um, you know, again, you know, more to come in terms of, you know, hopefully more things to look at. Um, I believe this patient also had KRAS G12C. So, you know, it is tempting to consider adjuvant KRAS inhibition, uh, perhaps again, totally it would be off label. But, you know, these are things to definitely to take into account um, in this um, in this patient. So, again, not straightforward um, at all here, um, as is all stage three patients. And then with that, we'll move on to the next session with Dr. Donington. He's going to talk about the very exciting space of um, early stage disease. All right. So not much to cover here. Pretty boring <laughs> within the last couple of years, but we're going to talk about the perioperative space. And I do like the terminology resectable rather than early. I think surgeons take a little offense <laughs> at the Art. terminology early. And it's, I think it's uh, probably comes mostly out of pharma, but... Uh, we, we now want to use early as stage one and then resectable more for the stage two and three. So these are the kind of key immunotherapy trials which we've seen in this space in the last, I think it's been not even three years. Um, first was uh, we saw the Checkmate uh, 816 of the neoadjuvant patients. Then we also saw Empower 010 and Keynote 091 for adjuvant therapies. And then this year we have been, uh, I don't want to say pounded, but we have seen a lot of perioperative trials report the Aegean, Keynote 671, and Checkmate 77T. Um, these trials are all fairly similar in design, but we'll kind of go through each one and its subtleties. So first, the neoadjuvant. Um, and, you know, the grandfather in this space is Checkmate 816. It is the oldest trial, almost three years, uh, that we've seen data. 
Um, and it is the only neoadjuvant trial. And I think those of us who recruited on this trial thought it was all going to be worthless and dead and passed on. But now it's become the great comparator. Everything else we do in this space kind of goes back into compares to this. This is the early data we saw at, uh, I think it was AACR uh, in 2021. Yeah, 2022. Um, and it showed the really impressive um increase in in uh, past CR with the addition of the nivolumab, which then also translated to an event-free survival advantage. We have now seen several updates in exploratory analysis from this trial. Um, at the European meeting this year, we saw the three-year update in event-free survival, and we're seeing that kind of plateauing of these curves. Uh, and it looks to me remarkably similar to Pacific, which is, again, nice and reassuring that we really are seeing cures in these patients. And the hazard ratio here is held on at 0 0.68. Um, this is the early OS data, also out at three years. Not quite statistically significant, but just about there. Probably has more to do with trial size than anything else. But again, a nice flattening of the curves and increase from 64 to 78% by adding the pre-op nivolumab. This year at ASCO, we got a little breakdown and we looked at, you know, the results from this trial by those who had surgery and did not have surgery. So you just remember that about 20% of patients in this trial did not go on to resection. These are the survival curves, EFS, time to distant METs, and then EFS2 for those who did have surgery. And it looks a lot like what I just showed you. Um, slight uptick, but not much. These are a little less exciting. These are the patients who did not go on to definitive resection and what their event-free survival and time distant METs looks like. And this isn't pretty. So this group uh, really does have poor prognosis. Um, it's not a zero population, and we're going to have to really work on better understanding who these patients are so we can treat them better, because obviously this regime is not really benefiting them to a great extent. We also saw the recurrence patterns in the beautiful tornado curves, and I think we see here what we were expecting. Local regional recurrences were essentially the same between the two arms. I do think that's kind of technical stuff. Um, and where we're seeing the real benefit is in distant metastasis, which were kind of more than halved with the addition of the nivolumab, and especially in the CNS. Uh, and then the nice little box all the way on your right kind of pulls out those patients who had CNS mets. And what we can see is that, you know, really no patient who had a past CR ended up with a brain met uh, eventually. And that what happened there really was kind of reflects the extent of the residual viable tumor they had. So in March, we did get FDA approval for nivolumab with patinum doublet uh, for resectable non-small cell lung cancer, uh, 1B to 3A, size greater than 4 centimeters. And this has become the standard in that space. Next, the adjuvant immunotherapy. So this was the first trial we saw, the Empower 010, looking at atezolizumab uh, following resection and adjuvant platinum-based chemotherapy. They did that hierarchical uh, survival advantages there in their trial design, and the curve all the way on your left is the one in which uh, they received approval for, which is the PDL1 positive patients, stage two to three A, um, with a significant uh, survival advantage by adding a tezolizumab and a hazard ratio of 0 0.66. 
Uh, as you go to the more broad population, all the stage two and three A's, regardless of PDL one status, you still see an advantage, but it has gone down a bit. And in the intention to treat, including the one B's, uh, they didn't meet their pre-specified uh, survival advantage. And this is a tough group. Those one B's, a lot of those patients are cured by surgery. So adding benefit there is always really quite hard. Uh, here we see those same sets of curves with and without the EGFR and ALK patients. So again, all of these trials, uh, the early ones, uh, included EGFR and ALK patients, mostly in small numbers. Uh, and you can see that curves don't change dramatically. So I don't think including those patients affected the trials, even though we might not think it's the best choice for these patients. Next is the Keynote 091 or the PEARLS trial. This was primarily run in Europe. Um, on, in many uh, ways, it looks like Empower, but it had subtle differences, uh, one of which being that chemo was only recommended and not required. So I think 15% of patients didn't see chemotherapy. Cisplatin also used by less than half of the patients in this trial. Its primary endpoints were all inclusive of 1B, so they did set themselves a higher bar. Uh, and this was one of their primary endpoints, which was overall survival in the uh, in the all comers. And we can see the curve here actually looks very similar to the atezolizumab uh, results. And this is where their FDA approval was based. It's their second endpoint that didn't go so great. <laughs> so this is the survival in those patients who were pdl one high, greater than 50%, we shouldn't see a home run here. It should be a slam dunk compared to all the other trials we have seen in this space, but this part of this trial did not behave as expected. Um, it's left people questioning, you know, what's the value of chemo, what happened here, but it's, it is a bit confusing. We do think that the control arm kind of overperformed, but uh, I do think this has kind of left people questioning the results of this trial. So now we do have FDA approvals for both atezolizumab and pembrolizumab in this space. The atezolizumab one came first in October of 2021, and it is limited to the stage 2 to 3A patients who are pdl one positive. Um, and I believe in Europe that uh, approval is even only for the pdl one high. Uh, they also approved their uh, companion diagnostic assay uh, when that approval came out. Uh, just in January of last year, pembrolizumab did get its approval as an adjuvant uh, following resection, and surprisingly, a much broader approval. So regardless of PDL one expression and down into the stage 1Bs, um, I'd be interested to know if there are patients in time where pembrolizumab for a patient with no PDL1 expression makes sense with our medical oncologists or not? Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, many patients come to us and they, they, they hear all about immunotherapy. So they're asking for it. So that, that's part of, you know, the conversation that we have as well. Um, you know, here with this open approval for, you know, any PDL1 expression, you know, it, it broadens the population. But we do need to kind of think about, you know, is a patient benefiting from it? There are definitely toxicities that come. Um, with, you know, taking a year of immunotherapy um, as well. So it is still something that it is sort of a case-by-case -case basis that I have the conversation with the patient, just weighing the pros and cons of it. Um, you know, the data is what it is, um, but also, you know, the patient's um, understanding and preference for, for the uh, regimens is taken into account.
I'm going to ask one more question. Both of these approvals were after platinum-based chemotherapy. Would you ever give it without platinum-based chemotherapy first? I am always going to offer the the chemotherapy. There's a cure. It's small. And I discuss how small it is with patient, but it's a durable response and meta-analysis. So I offer it. Not everyone takes it. But I'm, I, I feel like it's an important component to this curative situation to try to cure it. So I do discuss it, offer it to every patient. Not every patient takes me up on it. Okay. All right. So next, this has been a very busy space, the perioperative immunotherapy space, neoadjuvant and adjuvant. So three trials here, Aegean, Keynote, and Checkmate 77T using Durvalumab, Pembrolizumab, and Nivolumab respectively. The designs on all these trials were incredibly similar. I guess that's a good thing and a bad thing. It allows us all to kind of compare data and put groups together. At the same time, you wonder if we should be asking some new questions um, as a group. All required four cycles, all paired it with platinum. I believe Keynote only allowed cisplatin, while the others allowed carbo or cisplatin surgery, and then on to their year. Aegean tried to leave pneumonectomies out of their group, but the name, number of pneumonectomies was quite similar through the trials. So as we compare them, I do always talk about how much they are alike. So the first one that we saw was the Aegean trial reported at AACR this year. Um, and here is the event-free survival curve uh, with the uh, addition of Dervalumab. I will tell you that this trial reported out at 11 months follow-up. And since I think the time it takes to treat someone on this regime is 18 months, <laughs> you have to recognize that not everyone finished therapy when we saw the results of this trial. So I do believe what we're seeing in all of these trials is still the effect of the neoadjuvant. And we're really not seeing what the adjuvant is, is getting us or buying us in this population, but a very nice separation of the early event-free curves. And then we're seeing both past CR, major pathologic uh, improvements, very similar to what we saw in Checkmate 816. I think that's a good thing. We want all of these agents to behave similarly, and so far this one does. Uh, Aegean has also given us a little look at how patients progress through to surgery. And again, these look very similar to what we saw in Checkmate 816, with 19% dropping out in each arm for the similar types of reasons, some progression, but mostly uh, a larger percentage are those who become unfit or don't want to go on to resection. Uh, next is Keynote 671. This was presented by Heather Wakeley at ASCO. And again, similar kind of separation occurs. Event-free survival 20, at 24 months is 62 versus 40 months. Hazard ratio in that same range as what we saw with Checkmate and Aegean. And again, here we see our, our pathologic responses. And again, very similar, you know, dramatic improvement in both past CR and major pathologic response. Uh, and then uh, we're starting to see more prolonged data at ESMO. Uh, we now have data out through, I think, 36 or 41 months. And we're seeing really nice event-free survival at 48 months. And then the first OS advantage in this space. So this is, you know, exciting and groundbreaking. Um, we really like to know that we are really making it to our end game here. Um, with a hazard ratio of 0.72, an improvement from 51 to 67%. This is a real 
uh, advantage in overall survival. It is the first we've seen. It is early, but I think it's exciting, and I'm hoping the rest of the trials will soon follow. So just a month and a half ago, or not even, the FDA approval for perioperative pembrolizumab with platinum chemotherapy as a neoadjuvant and then single-agent adjuvant has uh, been approved. Same population, tumors greater than four centimeters, node positive, um, and it did come with a platinum-containing chemotherapy approval as opposed to a cisplatin as the trial was run. Does that change your thoughts on how to use it or...? No, um, for, for me, I do offer um, for cisplatin in the um, neoadjuvant and adjuvant space. You know, if there is a patient for whatever reason has some kind of a reason they can't get cisplatin, then of course we would substitute with carboplatin. But um, you know, just seeing the OS data here, you know, I, I'm somewhat glad to see that you know it's not restrictive in in the approval. But um, you know, I think we do need to take it a little with a grain of salt as well. Similarly, the first question my pharmacist asked when the approval came through was, are we doing cisplatin or are we offering either? And we, as a group, when we talked about a tumor board, said we're willing to have carboplatin be one of the choices. But acknowledging that some of the data to come, like with the GN, will hopefully flesh out that answer with, you know, forest curves, that the forest plots that tell us more about what distinction there might be between those two. I, I, same thing. I want to give cisplatin when I can. A lot of these patients are of an age or have comorbidities like neuropathy where I, I just don't feel comfortable with cisplatin if I can get away without using it, but that's how we built it. And then also at ESMO this year, we saw the Checkmate 77T. I do think this is probably the best comparator to the Checkmate trial. Um, it is slightly different in that um, the 816 trial only had three cycles neoadjuvantly, and this one used four. Um, otherwise, the two trials should be fairly uh, good comparisons. Um, this is a very early event-free survival, again, 18 months, um, but we are seeing a nice uh, separation of the curves, uh, hazard ratio of 0 0.58, uh, 50 to 70 percent improvement in progression-free or event-free survival. Incredibly impressive um, improvement in both major pathologic response and past CR. Uh, they also gave us some of their surgical data, which, again, looks very much like the 816 trial. You know, numerically, more patients underwent lobectomy than pneumonectomy. Completeness of resections were really quite similar. So I think I pass it back to you for more discussion. Thanks so much. That's so much data to cover. Well, the superbly done. I admit this is not actually an immunotherapy portion of the talk, but we wanted to include it at, before we get into our cases because I think with all the excitement of immunotherapy, there are two data sets I want to show that both are exciting in and of themselves, but also maybe affect our multidisciplinary planning for these patients, including whether we need to do some genomic evaluation where we haven't traditionally done that in early or resectable stage disease. So just a few minutes on these two data sets. The first is the ADARA trial. This is a phase three double-blind study of patients with canonical EGFR mutations. These are patients with completely resected stage 1B, 2, or 3A disease. Uh, they could get adjuvant chemo at their option, and um, if they're and they had to have brain imaging, and if they were eligible, they were stratified by stage, EGFR mutation, and race, Asian versus non-Asian, and randomized to three years of osimertinib versus placebo. 
The primary endpoint was disease-free survival in stage 2 and 3A patients. And the first ASCO plenary presentation of these data were following an IDMC recommendation to unblind early because of the um, extent of efficacy. So this was the DFS, the primary endpoint, stage 2 to 3A disease. And you can drive a truck through those survival curves, right? Or those DFS curves, I should say. Um, really impressive response. Now, in a way, this is... Um, this uh, is sobering, right? Because that yellow line, that's the natural history of, of EGFR patients resected for cure. So you can see how strong that recurrence rate is. But with osimertinib at three years, there's a clear separation with that blue curve, a hazard ratio of 0.23 that makes us all really excited. Now, there is a drop-off on that blue curve, right? After 36 months, the osimertinib stops, and there is kind of an ongoing uh, downtrend there. So there's more to know as this, as this goes. Are we curing patients or just delaying their recurrence? That's a really important question. But on the basis of these data, the FDA did approve adjuvant osimertinib. Um, this is the stage data. Each stage had a, a, a very healthy hazard ratio uh, of benefit, even at the 1Bs. So that's important to note. The FDA approval was actually stage agnostic, so technically stage 1As. That's, that's being explored in other trials. I, I tend to restrict mine to 1B and above. And then um, also of note, osimertinib is CNS active. That's one of its charms in the metastatic setting. And so, again, the natural history is that even in resected patients, you're seeing this, uh, um, this incidence of CNS uh, disease, uh, enough that makes me wonder if we should be surveilling people's brains. We, we don't get insurance approval for that right now. But uh, that was another compelling reason for patients to consider this approach. And then the second ASCO plenary session by the same guy, Dr. Herbst over at Yale, I presented the overall survival benefits. Again, as Dr. Donington mentioned, that's the ultimate goal of all of this, right? And so um, very nicely showed that there was an overall survival benefit, has a ratio of 0.49, very statistically significant. And even though we had approval before these data came out, this was confirmatory. We can always nitpick about what people saw in the second line and such. And we have quibbled about that in medical oncology. But these are compelling data that I think support the approval and really have led it to become the standard of care. Um, even though EGFR patients were allowed on some of the trials that Dr. Donington presented, I think most of us favor these curves to the curves that she showed. So we can't offer this, though, unless we know the mutation. That's been a mantra for a long time in metastatic disease, not so much in early stage and resectable. And this, again, just another uh, sh uh, just a cut with the 1B patients, still a robust hazard ratio of 0.49. And then this year at ESMO, we had kind of a counterpart study, the ALENA trial. This is adjuvant electinib versus chemotherapy in ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Again, stage 1B to 3A, resected patients, um, had to have brain imaging, um, fat factors similar. Now, a little difference here is that um, uh, Dr. Donington asked about chemotherapy. I still think, again, chemotherapy may have a curative role in patients. Small number, but a real number. This trial, patients either got electinib or chemo. So if you went to electinib for two years, not three years like osimertinib, you did not get platinum-based chemo. Primary endpoint was DFS for stage 1B to 3A, but of course looking at uh, CNS uh, uh, survival, OS, and safety. And what we saw again, just a hazard ratio of 0.24. These are really nice curves. This uh, is not unexpected. This is a similar situation. If anything, electinib has better outcomes in metastatic settings. So this is not unexpected, but really good to see in black and white. And so here's disease-free survival. And again, in ALK, which is even more CNS-tropic than EGFR, we still we, we again see that splay of curves to show that even if maybe we're not curing 
at all the patients, even for stalling CNS progression is, a, is, is an outcome that I think a lot of patients appreciate. So again, I presented those two data sets just to make sure they're on your minds as well. And maybe when we get into our multiple discussion, we'll talk about when we integrate some of that genomic look. So let's go to case four. Um, so this is a former smoker, had a 50-pack year smoking history 20 years ago. Uh, the person quit, though. FEV1 of 58%, a DLCO of 90%, and a pretty good ECOG status of 1. What you see here is a 6-centimeter uh, suprahilar mass on CT. On PET imaging, question N2, and we get these sometimes, you know, is that a reactive node or is that an involved node? That may have a lot of bearing on what Donington offers to this patient. But here's the PET imaging. So I think appropriately the patient had staging not just brain MRI and PET otherwise, all negative, but also invasive mediastinal staging. I'll defer to Dr. Donington whether, um, uh, whether uh, mediastinoscopy plays a role anymore, but I think more often our patients are going for EBUS. This patient had an EBUS with interventional pulmonology. Um, the 11R node was positive, but all the mediastinal nodes were actually negative, as sampled at 4R, 7, and 4L. So in the end, this was, um, by evaluation, a clinical T3N1, so a stage 3A tumor, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and this biomarker testing, they did test for EGFR and ALK, and PDL1 was on the high side at 60%. All right, Dr. Donington, this patient's landing in your, in your clinic first, most likely. How are you talking through this case? How are you thinking about it? What are you talking to the patient about? So I think maybe something would have changed in the last couple of years with this patient. So, you know, by clinical staging right now, we did the EBUS for 4L7 are negative, but we have N1 disease. So it is a stage three, but it's an N2 negative stage three. And, you know, a lifetime ago or five years ago, that patient would kind of go to surgery right off. In my clinic with a negative EBUS and a PET positive lymph node like that, we would be tempted to repeat a mediastinoscopy. Mm. We could, I typically would book them on the same day. We call them bead and proceed um, because that's so suspicious. And, and the difference of what we do is so big. In 2023 now, it's a little bit different. So, you know, all of the induction immunotherapy trials included stage two. So I don't have a reason to go re-biopsy that lymph node because an N2 negative stage three in my clinic is still going to get induction therapy. Um, I induce my stage twos and my stage threes. I induce all of them. Uh, I just think that, you know, adherence with therapy is better. I think this is not chemo and the biology makes more sense to have the tumor in place. So uh, that's where I'm going. I think the difference between neoadjuvant and periadjuvant, I think that's a decision we make as we go, <laughs> as we, you know, see how the patient did with each step and then what each response is. But it's, it is nice having that option and not having to kind of play with the insurance companies to get that option. You know, we used to do a lot of, what do we call it? Like Checkmate 826, because we were adding in power and Checkmate together to get <laughs> our pre and post. And now I think we're going to have approvals for us to have that option as we go. But I couldn't sit here today and tell you which one is going to be better for this patient per se. And of course, you don't have to sign the orders for the induction. Dr. Shum does. So <laughs> Dr. Shum, you're actually getting to Epic and you're going to sign some beacon order. What are you signing? How are you thinking about that? How many cycles? Which drugs? At least for the, for the preoperative. We'll get to the postoperative. Yeah. So it, it's hard to put all the data together. And again, none of these are, you know, compared head to head. Um, of course, you know, with the 
the perioperative regimen there, you know, we, we do have OS data. So that, of course, you know, does drive, you know, a big um, advantage as to, you know, what I think most people here also are, are choosing. Um, but there are subtle differences of all these regimens. So, you know, even for the neoadjuvant um, chemo, um, neoadjuvant chemo IO, uh, followed by surgery. Are you going to do three cycles, four cycles? You're going to use a different immunotherapy um, for those. Um, so you do have to talk to the patient also about, um, you know, what, you know, how we're going to strategize. But I think that's what we're looking for from these studies. You know, what's going to help us decide which regimen is really best? Is it going to be ctDNA, minimal residual disease, the biology at resection, um, as Dr. Donington was saying, that you know, from the beginning, maybe we don't commit to the adjuvant immunotherapy. Let's see what the surgery reveals. And then we decide from there. Uh, this patient with a PDL one of 60%, you know, of course, very tempted to continue with the immunotherapy. But I think that is the beauty of neoadjuvant therapy, that you can see what the therapy has done to the tumor to maybe help you make an even more informed decision. Great. Let me let me just make you put your finger down, though. So when you sign your order, four cycles or three cycles? You kind of mentioned you the Pembro data from the summer probably sway you. Are you just saying four cycles straight away? Four cycles, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we've always given adjuvantly anyway, so it kind of feels right. Not that there's great, amazing data between three and four cycles. These are old meta-analysis days, but it sounds like you would go for the four. And again, adherence is much better preoperatively. Mm-hmm. I think adherence is much better drugs, right? You guys aren't swayed by the fact that if you look at the past responses from checkmate 717 and 816, there was no increase in past CR or major pathologic response? Fair enough. That's a fair question. I don't know, every week that that patient's not back in my clinic, I'm getting nervous. That's a point, right? <laughs> and the patient gets the NC2. The part of this in the clinic is, I admit it's a discussion with our surgeons that patients, they understand when we talk about this through and do shared decision-making, but what's the inclination? It's to get the damn tumor out, right? And I, I think sometimes we're trying to convince them that you will be well-served by doing this now, but sometimes that's a hard sell. I don't know if you've had these conversations a lot, I imagine. Uh, it is. It's a hard sell. I mean, and, and it's been an easy sell when I'm selling three before versus 12 after. Now I'm selling three, bef- you know, four and 12. It's, I, I don't know. I have to get new new lines. Yeah. <laughs> so the patient uh, gets neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus ICI. You know, it's generically put. We, we left it very ecumenical. What's next? Dr. Donington, they've had their four cycles. Do you want imaging? Do you want any kind of repeat invasive imaging, invasive evaluation? You just go take her, take, take the patient to the OR. So we, when we get them back in clinic, we do re-image them. So we treat them kind of as if they were coming in for the first time. They get, you know, a CT, a PET, and repeat PFTs and physiologic uh, evaluations. Some of these patients can deteriorate pretty significantly. I actually think it's the chemo and not the immunotherapy that impacts their perfusion and stuff. Um, I do not go after any increase in nodal disease or any increase in the chest myself, just because I've been burned so many times with just nodal flare. Uh, if we were to see at a distant site that has changed, then that we would biopsy. Yeah. Otherwise, it, we, as long as I don't see progression out of the field, it's kind of heading toward surgery. All good points. And I made the point about uh, pseudo-progression before. This is a place where the nodes can kind of confuse us. And so I, I appreciate that point, especially in this kind of immediately preoperative setting. Yeah. So I'm curious what, what, what you guys think. Dr. Shum, um, how are you thinking about that extra, either to finish out a year or an additional year? I think the keynote was finishing out the year, I think, right? 
Yeah, so it's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I think um, yeah, for both situations, I, I would offer it um, to the patients, you know, explaining, you know, the nuances of both. Um, but I think that that's just is, you know, there's before um, the keynote study came out, you know, when Checkmate came out and there's no adjuvant part of it, you know, many of us were wondering, that's it? That's all we're going to do? Um, so I, I think, you know, we're, we're still looking for other somewhat biomarkers, you know, to help us decide, you know, is that the right thing to do? And then for patients with a persistent disease, it also makes you wonder, oh, well, did the new adjuvant not work as well? And so is giving more really going to give you any more benefit afterwards? But I think that also kind of depends on, um, you know, what was going on in the tumor um, at the time. And uh, so it's a tough question for which we, we don't have all the tools to really make an informed decision. Yeah, we saw a, an outside case a few a few weeks ago where the patient got the neoadjuvant, had zero pathologic response. And the outside oncologist said, let's get, let me give four cycles of a different chemo. And I think a lot of us just said, oh, are we really sure that's the biology response we want to offer? I, 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 it's, it's uncharted waters. I wouldn't take that approach, but I just, I, I share your concern. But also maybe the patients with past CR are the ones who don't need that extra year of exposure. I'd, I'd make that argument even. But again, more data to come as these data sets mature. And a lot of these trials have incorporated ctDNA at different juncture points that may really flesh this out. But as Dr. Donington said, I wish maybe some of these trials had asked some of these questions more directly, right? I'd love to see a randomized trial of PATH-CR patients get additional therapy or not. I, that'd be important to know. Isn't this what our cooperative groups are supposed to do? You'd think. <laughs> you'd think. <laughs> so just again, what an exciting time though. So now is really the point where we want to see if there are questions. We have an expert panel up here. How, how, when the rubber meets the road, how are you treating these patients with these wonderful data, but without the perfect data? We never have the perfect data. Um, there are a couple of questions that come in from online, but are there any questions in the room? We want to acknowledge the folks who came out early with their coffee. And if not, I'll go to the online questions. There's a big light in my eye, but I don't see any hands raising right now. So maybe I'll start with one. And this is a question for Dr. Shove, a couple of Medonc questions. You know, a lot of discussion 10 years ago or nine years ago when we were starting to f learn about these agents, first in the second line metastatic setting, then first line, any mechanistic reason why PD-1 versus PDL one matters? To me, I, I kind of treat them all the same, to be quite honest. Um, you know, the data is not too much different. So I, I don't really take that too much into account, you know, when choosing which regimen um, or which immunotherapy agent specifically to use, honestly. And another medical question, we did present a few cases with KRAS. KRAS is the dominant, you know, probably a third of our patients are presenting with KRAS mutated disease of different different subtypes. Is there a role that you're excited about where you're using it now? You mentioned an off-label adjuvant maybe in consideration, but any thought or, or kind of clinical trials that you're interested in that incorporate ICI plus KRAS inhibitors that have that are on market or coming? Yeah, no, definitely. So I, I think that's where we're all looking for is in the frontline setting about using KRAS inhibition. Um, but I think um, definitely the combinations is probably where, you know, these uh, some of these early KRAS inhibitors are, are really going to find their, their real place. Um, so, I mean, there are many that are ongoing. You know, there have been some uh, questions about increased liver toxicity if you combine it with an immuno, um, immune checkpoint inhibitor. Um, but, you know, I think that's something that we're definitely looking uh, to see, you know, can we um, basically address the tumor from two, two ends here. So um, de definitely excited to see what we see in the frontline space there. A lot of safety questions too. Mm -hmm. These the, the TKIs are not all the same. They have different interactions with immunotherapy, with chemo that we really have to be mindful about. 
this is an important one. This wasn't an issue before, but it's going to become more of an issue. Does the use of immunotherapy in early stage or resectable non-small cell lung cancer modify the disease? And th- what they're getting at is if the patient gets neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy, then has metastatic progression, what's your take on using immunotherapy alone with chemo and double immunotherapy? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so... Again, these are all amazing things that are happening in the resectable state. I get to pass on all the tough questions. Yeah. That's a nice prerogative of chair. But it is, um, you know, whether it's the immunotherapy or the target therapies, you know, if unfortunately a patient does recur and becomes metastatic, you know, we do have some big questions. So I think um, first things would be the duration of time that has passed. Um, so if it has been like a fairly long time since they received any agent, you know, we might consider about rechallenging them to hopefully kind of regain a response perhaps. Um, I definitely would re-biopsy at the time to kind of see what's going on, make sure, of course, that this is a, a tr- either a true recurrence or it could be a de novo cancer. Um, but you know, again, just kind of seeing what, what are you dealing with at that point. Um, if a patient had received um, uh, adjuvant immunotherapy, you know, you might be, you know, want to consider maybe dual checkpoint inhibition, but we, we really don't know. We really don't know. Um, and, and these are definitely big questions that, um, in terms of sequencing data, um, our, our regimens, you know, are, are going to play a big point. And important for trial design, if there are sponsors in the audience, I think that um, it's problematic when some of the stage four trials say you can't have prior ICI experience. Well, we're going to have a core of patients who do. Maybe we have to sub, kind of subgroup them out. But I think these are really important questions because, you know, using immunotherapy preoperatively is maybe very different than kind of a post-surgical setting and, and years later or a year later or right on therapy. So really important. Let's bring Dr. Donington into this. A couple of questions. Um, you know, obviously, we all work at academic medical centers, but as you think about your interaction with our pathologists, we don't have a pathologist here today, but are you in communication with them? Obviously, on a trial, there are very strict criteria about what's a path CR, what's an MPR. Are you in touch with your pathologist? Are they giving you the data you need? Are you? What are you requesting of them, both of kind of the, the invasive staging, but also what you get after your surgery? So we actually talk to our pathologists a lot now. So we'll see that. We recently had a patient presented a tumor board last week who had, you know, a giant tumor, six centimeter tumor. And then the the final tumor reads out at 1.5, but it's got like 50% residual disease. And you're like, wait, if I went from six to one and now half of that's dead, isn't that like 10% residual disease? And there was this whole like 20 minute discussion at tumor board that put all the fellows to sleep about how to reread these. And it's really important now. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, pathology has become a much more integrated part of the multidisciplinary team since the, you know, ICIs and targeted therapies have come into the space. And of course, in that vein, also, in our, in our systems, we're pretty, we're all together under the same roof. We have the same tools. Sometimes the surgeon's the first portal of entry with a, patho- with a surgeon who may not go to a thoracic tumor board. What's your approach to making sure you have the data you need pathologically? Are you requesting NGS and PDL1, or is PDL1 not that important for your decision making neoadjuvantly? So we we like PDL1. It's definitely, I know we're not supposed to use it to make our decisions, but it's certainly a lot easier to be super enthusiastic about, you know, that big tumor if they've got a 90 or 100 percent PDL1, because you know their chance of responding is, is 60 percent. I mean, it's real. Um, so we do, when we stage people, we want uh, NGS, PDL1 on everybody. And 
For the people who come from the outside, we have gotten to the point where we are re-biopsying a fairly large number of them because I would say most biopsies from the community are not done by interventional pulmonologists. It may be done by a pulmonologist, which is, I, I say, very different yep. in terms of tissue acquisition or it's by a fine needle. And I would say more than half did not have adequate cells and tissue for us to run the full sequence. That's a tough conversation to have with the patient, but again, telling them that getting them on the right therapy is better than getting them on a therapy next week is a conversation we have to have. In New York or Chicago, are you having trouble getting NGS in early stage or resectable disease? You know, only EGFR, only EGFR has an adjuvant indication. Any challenges, not just logistically, but um, but financially? Yeah, there definitely are challenges. I mean, um, you know, to begin with, um, the biopsy specimen is sometimes not enough to send a full NGS panel. The timing of getting those results back. So we are sending uh, liquid biopsies, you know, upfront. But again, those aren't perfect, so you're not gonna, you might not get everything. So, but it, it's definitely something that in the field we we need to talk about in terms of expediting to get all that information upfront, especially with many of these trials, you know, excluding EGFR and ALK patients. Um, you know, for these neoadjuvant uh, regimens, but it is tricky to get everything quick enough, especially when a patient wants surgery uh, very soon as well. I interject to say, as, as exciting as liquid biopsy, circulating tuber DNA as a tool, the yield for genomics tends to be lower in, in non-metastatic settings. So a, a negative uh, circulating tumor DNA for genomic changes is often a non-informative study, not a negative study. I just hasten to say that. Dr. Donington, um, does MRD testing have a role? Like we are seeing some of these kind of serial numbers. I think the Aegean trial had some interesting numbers, but ha would you use that clinically yet? I'm not using it clinically yet. Okay. I'm too, uh, I, what am I, in my source, Max Dean and I are old friends for 30 years and he says it's not there. So until he tells me the technology is there, I'm, uh, I, I, I just, don't, I, I think it should be in every trial. I think from research wise, we have so much to learn, but I don't think I can make a clinical decision yet. Right. But as Dr. Shum alluded to, the postoperative, I think, lack of either path CR, lack of residual disease might play into deintensification, which might be useful for some patients. But again, it's been so exciting to get these data the last few years. These folks have done a great job of summarizing these data. We really appreciate you coming in and on the, before the multidisciplinary meeting starts, but really want to appreciate your attention and stay tuned. There's more to come the next few years. And these kind of meetings, which we appreciate the sponsorship for, really do let us dissect these data, share them with you, and kind of learn how to use these data in our clinic to help our patients' outcome. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NCG 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.